Today we're going to be talking about Exodus. The book of Exodus, a lot of stories you're familiar with, maybe some things you're not familiar with. Um, In addition to the stories of Moses in the burning bush, ten plagues, Pharaoh hardening his heart, crossing the Red Sea, uh, the Ten Commandments, plans for the tabernacle, there is a lot of, of theology wrapped into the story. Um, one particular commentator says this, Exodus contains some of the richest foundational theology in the Old Testament. Preeminently, it lays the foundations for a theology of God's revelation of his purpose, we know what he's up to, his redemption, his law, and his worship. It also initiates the great institution of the priesthood and the role of the prophets and formalizes the covenant relationship between God and his people. It introduces a lot of great things about God's program. If you put them in a list, it basically is God's revelation um, and of his purpose, and that is to restore us into relationship and restore his creation back to its proper place. His redemption through a substitute, his law that makes us distinctive people, um, his worship, which is adoration of him. And by the way, there's a, uh, uh, out at the Connection Center, there's a little um, writing that came out this past week um, by Jen Wilkin on adoring the Lord. And I'd encourage you, it's one page. It's really, really helpful. Um, it talks about the priesthood and how the priesthood is a mediation that we don't go directly to God. Um, and yet we are priests is what we find out. Uh, the prophets who are spokesmen for God, the covenant which defines the relationship with God. All of this stuff is in there, but it's in the context um, of a struggle with nations. And, and I want to tell you, throughout the history of, of the Bible, um, there are nations like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylonia, like Rome, who are all trying to extinguish not just the Messiah in the New Testament— Um, crucifying him, but in the Old Testament, trying to extinguish the very nation. And all of that is Satan's diabolical plan to to get rid of the nation in the Old Testament so that the conduit that God makes clear in Genesis chapter 12, the conduit through whom he's going to do all of this redemptive work and restore us into relationship with him, the nation is, is on the verge of being destroyed again and again and again because Satan's trying to nip it in the bud. <laughs> he's trying to extinguish the nation because God has said he's going to use this nation to bring the Messiah. And so we're going to see that. And in particular in the book of Exodus, there's a lot of Egyptian background. And I have a, a book in my, um, in my library written by Henry Frankfurt. He's uh, a French archaeologist and uh, Egyptologist. He's, with, uh, he's, he's passed away now. Uh, I don't know if he's a believer or not. Um, but he, he frames the struggle for existence in a, in a really good way. Here, here's what Henry Frankfurt says. The tenacity of the Hebrew struggle for existence in the sordid turmoil of the Levant, that area of the world, was rooted in the consciousness of their election. They knew they were elected to be God's people in conduit. And so they kind of had this sense, we have to stay alive because if we don't, how is the whole world going to be blessed? This animated the leaders of the people, whether they were kings like David and Hezekiah or prophets opposing kings in whom belief in the unique destiny of Israel had been compromised. There's a battle to say, we are the people of God. And, And sometimes they would say, and we're special, and they would go too far with that. But most of the time, they are recognizing we're the channel through whom God's going to bless the world, so we have to keep our, we have to keep our feet on the ground. <laughs> uh, now, in addition to trying to 
help you see the big picture in so many ways. I, I really am hoping that this study through the survey of the Bible gets you to see more than just isolated verses or more than just chapters, but it gets you to see whole books at a time and what the whole message of the books are. But in particular, where we are now, I'm going to go through this a number of times because I really want you to review this, and there's a number of different perspectives for putting the Pentateuch together, the first five books of Moses, the five scrolls. Um, And and here's one way I would present it. In, In Genesis, we find out that God is the creator and he's in charge. He starts everything. In Exodus, we find out that creator is a redeemer wanting to get everything uh, reestablished and to restore and to redeem his people and to have a relationship in which they live the right way and worship him well. In Leviticus, we find out that God who's redeeming is holy. And so how do you live with that? We find out in Numbers that that God is unstoppable. He can't be prevented from accomplishing his purpose. And in Deuteronomy, we found out he's very serious. (laughs) He goes back and he says, this is what I've said. Are you committed to it? That's how the the Pentateuch is framed. But all of that, keep in mind what I just said about Henry Frankfurt, all of that is them being aware we are the elect nation. We are the chosen people through whom redemption will come. And this guides them because God has created them. He's redeemed them. He's holy in their midst. His purpose is not going to be stopped, and he needs them to be serious about that commitment to them. That's what's going on in the Pentateuch. I'll keep reviewing that. Uh, Danny Hayes says this. In the Old Testament, the Exodus event, this main event that we're going to see, out of bondage in Egypt, um, through the, the plagues that God uses to, uh, to um, break Pharaoh, through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where they get the law and the plan for the tabernacle, This exited event becomes the paradigm or the model of what salvation is all about. The exodus event to the Old Testament as the cross is to the New Testament. I want to demonstrate this to you just real clearly. I'm not going to look up all these verses. But I want you to see the exodus from bondage that you couldn't get out of by yourself. Redemption, God graciously providing a deliverer that leads you to freedom and a new way of living in worship with him, the law and the tabernacle, that paradigm is throughout the Old Testament. And basically, here it is. (laughs) Again and again, throughout the Bible, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. These are the verses. Um, We're not going to read them, (laughs) but you just go throughout the scriptures, and what you're reading again and again is, what I'm doing there, that's what I'm up to. I'm the God who did this. I'm the God who did this. And then when you get to the New Testament, what you find out is Jesus is the one who does this, not in the picture, he does it in the reality. And that's what's going on here. Danny Hayes goes on to say, the story of God's deliverance, by the way, these two quotes from Danny Hayes are from this big book that's available for you for 20 bucks today after the service. The story of God's deliverance in Exodus shapes the theological thinking of the entire Old Testament in regard to the character of God and the nature of his gracious salvation. Um, this Exodus event is, is paradigmatic. It's the paradigm for salvation. And, and it's what over and over and over again you see the Old Testament referring to as this is what God does. Um, a number of the Psalms, um, and I can't put all of them, but some major sections of Psalms 77, 78, 95, 105, 106, 114, 135, 136 all recount um, in narrative expanses different parts of the Exodus, in order to draw lessons from Israel's history. This, this 
the Psalms keep going back to this when they are worshiping God. They say, because he did this, there's really two major things. We'll get to this when we cover the Psalms. Two major things that the Psalms go back to. God is the creator and he's the redeemer. So worship him. That's what's going on. So now let's move into the context. Who, when, where, and why is Exodus being written? Uh, Let's talk about this. First of all, it's the continuation of Genesis. Um, Here's the first verse in Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, and then it's going to name the the 12 tribes. That's the last scene in the book of Exodus. But I want to point out something really important for you, and that is that one letter. That one letter, it's a vav. It's a vav disjunctive. Um, it, It is a Hebrew letter that means and or next. It ties completely in this story to Genesis. It's almost like the narrative is not breaking. Um, It doesn't say the names of the sons of Israel are this. It says and, or now, or next, what you're going to see is here's the continuation of this story. There's an and there. Um, This continues this story that God has been telling. It's not a new separate part of it. Literally, the first word of the book is and or then. And then it ties it back into Genesis. Um, this word right here, Shemoth, um, is, the, is the Hebrew name for the book, names. The Hebrew name for the book is names. I'm going to give you next week the names, the Hebrew names of all of the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, but what they do is they basically take one of the first words in the book, and, and that becomes the name of the book. So this is names of the people who were there and, and what happens after that 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 story of them being in Egypt, and what we're going to find is they became enslaved. In fact, that's what I'm going to tell you next. When Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, this is the next verses in in Exodus, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. They are flourishing. They go down to Egypt as 70 people at the end of Genesis. They are flourishing. They're growing like crazy down there in Egypt. But a new king comes up. Now, if you want to know who this new king is, I've got an article for you out there at the Connection Center. Um, This is um, a a couple of different ways you can frame this. Um, The best way to frame this is this is all taking place in the 18th dynasty, um, of Egypt in 1446. I've got a, a, a historical piece out there if you want to get the details. If you want even more, two resources, Kingdom of Priests by Eugene Merrill or A History of Israel by Walt Kaiser. Both of those are big, thick books like this. If you're really into the historical background of the Old Testament, those are the two things I would p- point you toward. Um, th- this is taking place, um, and we can date it related to what's happening in Egypt, and we know what's happening in Egypt. Now, who put it together? Well, here's, here's the deal. Moses is not now, like in Genesis, working with handed-down oral tradition. Um, Moses was given these stories um, in Genesis. He's now working with some events that he's the eyewitness to. They're stories about him. But then there's some of the book of Exodus that he takes down as instruction, law from the Lord, um, plans for the tabernacle, woven into that some other personal experiences he has with the nation of Israel and their faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Um, And he delivers this to 
to the people of God. It's written, some of it written directly by the hand of God. Some of it is pretty dictated. Um, but a lot of it is stories that happened to him in his lifetime. This is now not Moses looking back and saying, here are all the stories and the Spirit is guiding me to arrange them this way. This is Moses saying, these are the things that have happened to me and this is the message that God gave me about how to live with him and how to worship him and I'm going to deliver it to you. Now, where were they? <laughs> Moses and the Israelites were, were camped at Mount Sinai after being delivered out of Egypt. My guess is during the plagues, during the exodus from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, Moses is not stopping to tell them the stories. My guess is all of this happens during the 40 days while they are camped at Mount Sinai. Okay, so here's, here's basically what happens. Um, Abraham and his family are up here in the promised land in, in Israel. Okay? They are going to move down here to the land of Egypt initially because Joseph was sold into slavery. He rises to a leadership place. His brothers come down because of a famine. They all stay, 70 of them, and they expand, and they are there for 400 years. They grow from 70 to um, well over a million people. It depends on how you count them and how, how it all works, but well over a million people during that 400 years. Um, they are down there, they are expanding, um, they are growing as a nation, but a new, um, a, a new king is going to take um, the Pharaoh's spot in Egypt. He doesn't know Joseph, um, and, and he's going to enslave the Israelites. Uh, my guess is the, the favorable kings were the Hyksos. They were non-Egyptians who had kind of kicked the Egyptians out and ruled over them. Now the Egyptians are retaking power, and as the Egyptians retake power, they're afraid of anybody like the Hyksos who would be there. And so they take the uh, Israelites who have grown huge in number and they enslave them. Well, the initial part of this describes 400 years very briefly uh, until they exit from this land and they cross the Red Sea. We don't know exactly where they cross the Red Sea. A lot of debate. Um, it has to be a sea big enough um, for God to part the waters and there be enough water to drown the Egyptians. So I don't care really where you make them cross. It's a miracle, okay? It's a miracle whether it was big deep water because God opened it and then let it come back and drown the Egyptians. If it's really shallow water, kind of a fun miracle too. I don't know what happens there. Maybe it's really shallow water. They walk across and then in shallow water, he drowns an entire Egyptian army. Either one of those is kind of a fun miracle of God's judgment. Um, they cross the Red Sea somewhere, and then they make their way down here to Mount Sinai. Now, a lot of people are going to try to put Mount Sinai over in Arabia, and you'll read that very commonly, that, that Mount Sinai is over in Arabia. The reason behind that is um, a Muslim narrative to say the Israelites really migrated from Arabia, and they don't have a right to the land. It's an argument of um, Arabs in Palestine to say, um, the, the Israelites came from Arabia. So it's, there's an agenda behind that. They, they camp down here at Mount Sinai. And like I said, they're there for about 10 months, really. They're, I said 40 days. They're, about, they're there for about 10 months. Now, when specifically this happened? It, the events covered um, after this brief report of the death of Joseph, which would have been 1806 BC, 400 years of captivity in Egypt, the birth of Moses in 1526, which is in chapter 1, it's going to happen really quickly. 
up to the Exodus in 1446. So we're going to get covered here. Um, after the quick 400 years, they're in bondage and they grow to be a huge nation. You're going to get about 80 years that is covered in this narrative. Um, Moses is writing, he, when, when he's actually writing it, that's the topic covered. When he's writing is after the Exodus, 1446, until just before the conquest of the land, just, just before they go into the land. This is where he's narrating this, he's putting it together, and I think he's framing it. But the initial messages and the initial events take place during that 10 months at Mount Sinai. Why was Moses writing this? What's he up to? I think he's writing to demonstrate to these people who need to know this. He's writing to demonstrate the power of Yahweh who delivered the Israelites from Egypt and clarify their distinctives as a newly formed nation as they prepare to inhabit the promised land. Genesis says God is is sovereign, chapters 1 through 11, and God has created and elected the Jewish people to be the conduit through whom he's going to bring the blessing. And it says you should trust him in that. This book is going to say, and I'm going to make them a nation. I'm going to give them a, a birth as a nation. They're going to grow big. They're going to get a constitution. At one level, Genesis is the title deed to the land. God promised it. You can have it. Exodus is the constitution of the nation of Israel. Here's how we were born. These are the distinctives of how we live, the law. And God is in our midst, and so we have a, a place, this tabernacle, where he lives. So, so what's going to happen is um, we're going to focus on Moses for a little while, and we're going to focus on Pharaoh for a little while, and then God's going to send these these. 10 plagues that are going to break them out of Egypt. This is maybe the most famous thing that happens in the book of Exodus. Um, Each one of the plagues is designed in some way or another to to reverse the the way that the Egyptian pharaoh was trying to treat the Israelites. You have to remember that, that at the beginning of the book, the children of the Israelites are being killed, all of the the children are being killed by being thrown into the Nile River. So the fact that the Nile River turns into blood is kind of a reminder, hey, you threw all of our kids in there, and and we're going to make this a problem for you. By the way, frogs, just to give you one example, I could do this with everyone, but don't have time. The the Heket is the the Egyptian god um, who is the god who represents and protects pregnant women. Um, so you've got something really important going on there in that, okay, you're going to have a lot of frogs and they're going to be a problem for you. It keeps going. Every one of these gods, there's an attack on an Egyptian god. And every one of them is um, a, a way to break Pharaoh down. Because at first Pharaoh's really arrogant and Pharaoh is hardening his heart. But eventually God says, you've hardened your heart enough. I'm going to harden your heart. And it switches from Pharaoh hardening his heart to God hardening his heart. And the whole point, I think, is really captured well by Doug Stewart, who says this. Only one God has any real power. By the way, good message for us. Only one God has any real power. And you might say, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, Ken. True. But who has power in your life? What has the power to shape your behavior? Um, and... and and I think Moses is writing to say there's only one God who has any power. 
He's told you how to live the law, and he's living in your midst in the tabernacle. So you better straighten up and fly right. So, how is this delivered and what is said in the message? Let me start off with how Exodus is organized. It's a narrative, and so it's going to follow this narrative storyline of events that continue the book of Genesis from the family of Abraham, uh, from the family of Abraham and their move down into Exodus um, through their secure living in, Israel, in, in Egypt. Um, and then there's this radical change when a new pharaoh comes in and enslaves them, but they still grow. They flourish under slavery, but God is now going to redeem them from that bondage. And so there's a dramatic display of God's uh, power that is seen in the book, followed by the Israelites, not only the ten plagues, but going through the Red Sea, destruction of the, uh, the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. But their travels, they're going to go to to Sinai, by the way, there's going to be kind of a prelude to the book of Numbers. There's going to be a battle with the Amalekites, opposition from without. God overcomes that. They're going to make it to the Mount Sinai. Then there's going to be the giving of the law and then some rebellion within. They're going to make a golden calf. But God's still going to fix all that and still dwell in their presence. So God's going to establish them as a nation. He's going to conquer their opposition. He's going to overwhelm their rebellion and he's still going to dwell in their midst. That's what's going on here. I, I think you can kind of put it this way. You've got Moses, who's a reluctant leader, and he gets prepared in verse, chapters 1 through 3. Pharaoh is an arrogant leader who gets overpowered in verses 4 through 6. The Lord is going to be the sovereign ruler who's recognized by everybody when he delivers them. And then the Israelites are, are going to be elected as a nation and given a constitution um, and, and a house for where God is going to dwell. The other way you can look at this is you've got the exodus from Egypt in 1 through 18, the covenant at Mount Sinai in 19 to 20. That's kind of the big movements. This is what the Bible Project does. You can see the two big sections there, exodus from Egypt, covenant at Sinai. That's another way you can frame it. Here's another way you can look at this. Um, There's the preparation of the deliverer, the defeat of Egypt, the revelation of the law, the response of the nation, both good and bad, And then the presence of the Lord who inhabits the tabernacle. Um, He's going to give them the law, um, and then they're going to um, rebel. Moses is going to break the tablets. He's going to give them the same law one more time. Then you're going to get this dual thing again. They get um, the plans. They're they're told, here's how you're supposed to build the tabernacle. And then we get the execution of it. They actually build the tabernacle, but it's very much um, repeated. Here's on my chart how I've got it. I, I've got the oppression, God's permitting this to demonstrate his power and, and to do a few other things. Then we're going to see deliverance. God permits, then he acts, and then he instructs them and he speaks. Um, first of all, this oppression. Why would God permit them to be oppressed? Um, I, I don't know the exact answer to it, but I do think it's something of a principle that I've seen in Scripture again and again. And that is God will do whatever it takes to preserve the holiness of his people. If that takes discipline, if that takes death. Um, There's a passage in the New Testament that says you can sin a sin unto death. It doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. It just means God's going to preserve your holiness and he's going to go, I've had enough, I'm taking you home. Um, God permits this. And I think maybe what he's doing in Israel is he's permitting them to be um, oppressed and enslaved in Egypt because as an enslaved group, they grow without any cultural influences. They're enslaved, they're segregated. The Egyptians don't like shepherds, 
So they move them out to Goshen, and, and they don't have anything to do with them, so they can maintain their own distinctiveness. This was very different than what was going on back in Canaan. Back in Canaan, it's called syncretism. The Canaanites were, would welcome you in and say, hey, you worship Yahweh? Let him join all the other gods we worship. God didn't want them growing where everybody would just make Yahweh part of the, part of the group. <laughs> he takes them down there because he's preserving the holiness of his people, preserving them in a way that they can grow and go back into the promised land, conquer it, and maintain their own identity. And by the way, um, <laughs> this attempt to destroy Israel has not stopped, but it has not succeeded to this day. There's still a nation of Israel, almost inexplicably. There's still a nation of Israel because God's going to accomplish his purpose. And God, God permits all this to happen because he's got a purpose. And the purpose is not just to bless people, it's to accomplish his plan. And he's going to deliver them. And again, this deliverance through the plagues and the Red Sea becomes this paradigm for what, bonded, for what God is up to. And then he's going to instruct them two different things, um, the law and the tabernacle. This is what's going on. So what is, what is the message? Here's how I tried to summarize it at the bottom of my chart you just saw. And it's out there at the Connection Center if you'd like one. Moses recorded the events of the Exodus from Egypt and presented the laws given at Israel at Mount Sinai with a repeated emphasis on the presence of Yahweh in the midst of the nation in order to show God's supreme power, redemptive work, and personal presence among his chosen people whom he had set apart by covenant so that they would follow him. There's a lot in there. Let me see if I can unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Exodus chapter 6 kind of brings some of this together. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. God wants you to know I've got a mighty hand. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I will, make myself, I will make myself fully known to you. I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, wherever they re, uh, resided as foreigners. God is saying this, I'm going to show my mighty hand. They saw me as God Almighty, but now you're going to see me as Yahweh. I'll talk about that more later. He, they're going to see him as Yahweh, which is the personal delivering covenant God. Um, it's almost like this, there's this co cosmic God in Genesis who's created the world, um, Genesis 1 through 11. And then he entered into Yahweh relationships with his people. And, and they saw him mostly as this God Almighty God. You're going to see me redeeming, delivering, because that's what uh, God does. And he says, I'm going to demonstrate this to everybody. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I'm going to redeem you because I'm powerful. I'm strong. I need everybody to see this. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out from the yoke of the Egyptians. You're going to know that I'm the powerful one who can redeem you that you may know, this is at the end there, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. He says that to the Israelites, but he's also going to say it to the Egyptians. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is demonstrating who he is to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. 
then you will know that I am God. He says it again and again and again. Why am I doing this? So you'll know that I am God. And then what he's going to do is he's going to say, and now here's how you should live. I'm demonstrating my power. Here's how you should live, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then kind of an exposition of the Ten Commandments follows that in Genesis chapter 20. Let me give you just three ways to look at this. The law, there's a moral part of the law, how we should behave. There's a ceremonial part of the law, how we should worship. But then there's this constitutional part of the law that I think most people miss, and that is how the Israelites should function. How we should behave, that's kind of humanity. Everybody should live this way. Believers should worship God, but it's the nation of Israel that is is um, guided by some of the constitutional parts. That's why it's not all applicable. The moral law is applicable. There's principles from the ceremonial, but the the constitutional parts of the law are, are not the parts that we uh, that we apply. So what God is saying is, I'm powerful. I've redeemed you. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to worship. And that is so that you may know that I am God. So the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This is the law. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come. So you, you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. He's going to say more than that. <laughs> and you'll know that I dwell in your midst. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Um, repeatedly in the book, you're going to see in this chart, there's some circles, and all of those circles show us the presence of God with the people. He says, I'm with you. I'll bring you to the land. He's with them in a pillar and a cloud. He's with them. Um, he, he's, there's going to be this epiphany, God's presence on the mountain. Then there's going to be a vision of his glory, a vision of his glory. And then finally, the glory of the Lord is going to inhabit the tabernacle because God is saying through the redemption, through your enslavement, through um, your deliverance, through you um, rebelling and finding opposition, I'm going to be with you. And here's how the book ends. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. They have been given instructions for the tabernacle and they've built it. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's this, I'm with you, I'm with you. Look at me on the mountain. There's a pillar and a cloud. And then all of that is in the tabernacle that they just built. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. God was with them (laughs) repeatedly. And that's one of the things I think we always see redemption, law, tabernacle, but spread through there is in the midst of all that, God's with you, God's with you, God's with you. And that's one of the messages we need to get out of this book. So what? What do we do now? (laughs) Well, here's what I think we should believe. The Lord reveals his character to us in his word and in his works. Read his word, pay attention to how he's working in your life, and you'll see his gracious character, his mighty acts, his power. And the Lord redeems his people from bondage when you can't get out of it yourself. The Lord makes his standards clear, and there's no other God. That's how it starts off. You shall have no other gods before me. There are no other gods, so you should have no other gods. That's what we should believe. How should we behave? Follow the clear revelation of God, knowing he's always with you. That's it. He's redeemed you. He's with you. He's revealed how we should live and how we should worship. 
How does this fit into the big picture? It's the paradigmatic redemption story. Um, All of those verses that I showed you in that big long list throughout the Psalms, this is the paradigm of what redemption is like. Redemption is like this. You're in bondage and you can't do anything about it. God will redeem you, but that's not the end of the story. God redeems you, and then he wants you to live this way as a witness for him in the world and continue worshiping him. Exodus, law, tabernacle, and through all of that, he is with you. So what are some next steps along the way? I think, first of all, recognize and submit to the supreme power of God. This is an Exodus message. But it's a New Testament message, too, because we read in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of everyone who's ever lived. (laughs) Israelites and Egyptians, believers and unbelievers, are going to submit to the power of God. So go ahead and do it now. Embrace and obey the clear revelation of God. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer. Come out of here going, yes, this was a huge fire hose of a message on one big giant book. And, and it, it's very different than what you normally do and what we normally do with just little verses or maybe a chapter. It's a whole book. But there's a way to respond to that, not just by hearing, but by readapting our life to where it needs to be. And understand and enjoy the constant presence of God. Make disciples of all nations. That's what the Israelites were supposed to do. They were a witness to the world. They were a channel of blessing to the world. And we as the church are a channel of blessing to the, Lord, to the world. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations. And then what does he say at the end of that? And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. I'm not so sure he wasn't thinking about Exodus when he gave the great commission. So pack a shoebox, support a missionary. Um, worship the Lord regularly. Be a doer of the word. 